Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and I've got my Bible open today to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. It says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. I think in this time, in this day, in this particular stage of life, I am so grateful for that verse that we have been given comfort that we can in turn comfort others. There's so many people in need right now. Bless you if you're one of those people today. Let me know how we can pray for you. You can always text a prayer request over to 877-933-2484. There's certainly lots of trouble in the world right now. And here to help me sort that out is Rob Bluey. He's the executive editor at The Daily Signal. Rob, so glad to have you here. Thanks. It's good to be back. Yeah. Yeah. I'm watching TV a bunch. I'm very drawn by the humanitarian stories. Uh, the war part's very hard to process, but tell me what's, uh, what your view is on this. Yeah, well, the big new development today is the United States has decided to cut off all imports of Russian energy. Uh, that is a big decision on the part of the Biden administration. I hope it's not too little too late, though, Bill. It's uh, something that uh, you even had many Democrats talking about going back to last week. And uh, the fact of the matter is that the United States was sending millions of dollars to Russia uh, by purchasing uh, its energy. And Europe still is, frankly. So that's uh, that's another problem that we'll have to have to perhaps tackle another day. But I think that this will send another signal to to Vladimir Putin that uh, we mean business. And uh, and it also means that the American consumers are probably going to pay a little bit more at the pump at home unless we start producing more energy here in the United States. But you're absolutely right. I mean, it's just devastating to see the images on television mm. of the civilians who are, are suffering the consequences. And, and frankly, um, the fact that uh, Vladimir Putin continues to pursue uh, his, his war on Ukraine uh, without regard to the, the, the human lives that are being impacted. I mean, he is not targeting military installations anymore. He is targeting uh, individual citizens. And uh, there are some who, who want him held accountable for war crimes. There are, uh, are others who, who would like to see uh, more swift actions taken against Russia. Uh, the, the, the fact is, this is not going according to plans. Uh, Putin would have liked to have, have already uh, seized control of the country. Uh, Ukrainians are fighting valiantly, and I think that's probably going to continue for some time. Yeah, well, credit cards have cut off service in Russia. I know, I think 850 McDonald's closed temporarily in Russia. I mean, they are eventually going to understand that this is not a military exercise like like Putin is saying it is. That's right. Uh, he he clearly has grander ambitions. I mean, the, his history uh, should su- suggest as much. If you go back to 2008, his invasion of Georgia, 2014, uh, his first invasion of Ukraine, uh, comments that he's made about 
the Soviet Union and its breakup uh, being, uh, you know, a, a tragic thing uh, for, for Russia. So you can go back throughout history and you can see what Putin is aiming to do here. He has uh, grand global aspirations and he's now partnering with the Chinese Communist Party in an attempt to do that. Uh, the disinformation campaign, uh, he is lying to the Russian people about what's going on. The Chinese are lying to their own citizens about what's going on to, to help the Russians uh, in this campaign. And they're blaming this on NATO and the United States. It's just mm -hmm. uh, unbelievable uh, that, that in our well-connected uh, 21st century, uh, we still have uh, these authoritarian, totalitarian rulers who, uh, who are engaging these, in these types of campaigns. Mm -hmm. Now, Rob, just as a dad, when you see these images of these little kids kind of wrapped up in their little coat with a little blanket and they're trying to sleep and they're just in this war-torn area. Doesn't your heart break into a thousand pieces? Oh, it, it certainly does. It is, it is devastating to see, and, and particularly those uh, young kids who have who've lost their lives. Uh, Bill, you know, I, um, my family is, uh, on my dad's side, is from, from Ukraine. Uh, originally, they immigrated from Ukraine. Uh, now the borders have shifted over time. My, my mom, is, uh, her family is from Poland. So, I mean, uh, you know, it, it, it breaks my heart. I'm sure we still have, you know, distant relatives who are still in, in that part of the world. And, uh, and, but regardless of that, um, it's just tragic to see uh, the young children who have been displaced and two million refugees who have left the country and have fled uh, for, for safer places to live. And, uh, and it's just uh, such, a, such a tragedy. And, um, and frankly, there are others who are trapped there who, who really don't know what their future holds because maybe Russia is now occupying uh, a portion of the country in which they, they once lived. Um, so, yes, it is, uh, it is certainly something that could have been uh, prevented. It's, uh, it's really um, unfortunate uh, and, and really heart-wrenching uh, to think that we didn't do all that we could, uh, perhaps, uh, to put the pressure on, on Putin. Uh, but uh, now uh, there's no time to waste. Um, yeah. and, and also, Bill, an encouraging, encouraging news this afternoon is that uh, Poland will be uh, allowing uh, the Ukrainians to have their, their MiG fighter jets, uh, which is uh, a, a really a good development. Um, the United States and NATO are not going to uh, go along with uh, President uh, Zelensky's request for a no-fly zone over over um, the country. Uh, as you and I have talked about, I think, last week, that could very well lead to World War III. Um, I think it also is just probably with, with Russian capabilities is a different scenario than when we had a no-fly zone over Iraq or Afghanistan or other places like that. Uh, but encouraging that uh, the partners in Europe are, are stepping up to do what they can to help. Mm -hmm. um, all that involves more death, though, which breaks my heart. I, I, I heard a Russian soldier uh, saying goodbye to his uh, son, and the poor son was just crying hysterically. And really, the truth was, he might never be seeing this child again. That's, that's right. And you, you think about, again, going back historically to the fact that you could have uh, families fighting against each other, uh, some right. who are located on the Russian side and Ukrainian side. And I, uh, I, I think that's why, you know, it's, it's, it's really tragic. And some have questioned why, why Putin is doing this. We've talked a little bit about his, his global aspirations, but also, you know, some have questioned whether or not he's mentally stable. I mean, why, how, again, in 2022, can you carry on this campaign of brutality as he's doing uh, condemnation uh, from across the globe? Mm -hmm. and, and those countries that have either taken a neutral stance or have supported Russia, I, I just frankly do not understand. I realize they may have some relationship with uh, with Russia, but it is uh, it is unfathomable. 
Yeah, I mean, when you uh, experience like a late check-in at a hotel and you think, I can't sit in the lobby for two hours, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you realize you lead a pretty cushy life when you get right. completely yeah. dejected uh, from your home and you're you're on a train going to a different country. Uh, the, the amazing blessing is, I think in Poland, there was a bunch of women that had uh, brought strollers to the train platform. So when these women in, uh, embarked from the train, they could get a stroller that had some provisions in it. And I'm thinking, oh, there's so many good people out there in the world. Well, and and that is something that I think we should we should recognize and even celebrate is the fact that these are countries, Hungary, Poland, um, uh, the Baltic states, uh, you know, others that have have opened their arms to all of these fleeing refugees because they do need a home right now and they're doing their best to help. Uh, it's unfortunate again that they have to be displaced and they're they're looking for for safety in another country. And I can't imagine what what you know if you or I were in a position where we had to had to flee our our home to mm-hmm. another another state or another country. I mean, how just how how devastating and uh, and uprooting that would be for us. But uh, they don't have any other choice in some cases, so they're looking for for help wherever they can find it. And uh, and it's uh, it's really encouraging that President Duda in Poland is taking the steps that uh, that he's been able to do. Are there many countries that are standing by uh, Russia right now? Is it just China? Is there anybody else? Because it seems like the rest of the world is really not happy with Putin and what he's doing. Yeah, there there were uh, a handful that, uh, that sided with Russia. Now, you also have to remember that there are some who declared neutrality. The biggest of those is India, okay. uh, which was disappointing. And I think we should put pressure on India, uh, obviously, to side with the global community in the United States. Um, so, as I indicated, some of these countries have a relationship uh, with Russia, uh, maybe a trading relationship, maybe a, a military relationship. And so th- that, is a, that is a factor. Uh, for instance, I think it was Eritrea and Syria a country in Africa and the Middle East, uh, which also sided with Russia. That's, so Syria is not necessarily surprising given, uh, given what Russia has done there in, in the past. And, uh, and, and China is the big one. China is, uh, is the, the powerhouse, which obviously uh, views the United States as an enemy, uh, both militarily and in economically. Uh, look at the damage that they've tried to impose on our country, uh, both, both uh, primarily economically and in terms of the jobs that they've They've uh, they've taken and uh, and they are um, uh, cheering on Russia, Bill, because the destabilization of Europe certainly helps China come in and uh, and and achieve what its aims are. Uh, They want to uh, try to take a position where the United States is is not in a leading role, uh, whether it be in NATO or whether it be in negotiations with Europe. And uh, and the Chinese are going to be aggressive. We need to recognize them as a threat. I'm not talking about the Chinese people here. I'm talking about the Chinese Communist Party, just to be clear to your listeners. I think the Chinese people, uh, unfortunately, are living under uh, this totalitarian regime, uh, but the party itself is, is, is quite evil, and the aims that it have are, are, are very much anti-Christian, uh, anti-religion. Uh, look at what they're doing to the Uyghur Muslims uh, and uh, the forced labor. Uh, the fact that they were able to get away with so much of this and host the Olympics, uh, again, is just a head-scratcher how the global community could go along with that. Uh, and now the Paralympics, um, you know, I, I just, um, it, it, it's hard to, to reconcile all of this. Mm-hmm. Rob, I wonder if you could add some analysis to this situation. I know not that long ago we were energy independent in our country and we were actually exporting uh, oil and gas to other countries. 
And now we are dependent to some degree on Russian oil, and now we're looking for other sources of oil. And I hear that that they say we just can't turn on the Keystone Pipeline because that would take years and years. And I'm thinking, well, that wasn't that long ago we were just energy independent. Why would it take years and years to get something flowing again? Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, we are blessed with an abundance of natural resources here in our own country. And uh, we are importing about 8% of, of all petroleum from Russia. So that's oil and gas. Um, so it, uh, it, it could have a short-term impact. But that is exactly why we need to do exactly what you were talking about. Now, can you just flip a switch and turn on Keystone? No, not overnight. But right. I mean, certainly people would work quickly and rapidly to make that happen. So when the administration uh, uh, pans that idea, as they have uh, today and, and previously, you know, it's, uh, it's a concern. Now, there are other steps, though, I think we could take uh, and, and that would help bring down prices. So, for instance, we could suspend the Jones Act, which would allow for more efficient shipping of petroleum products uh, to the United States. We could certainly provide some regulatory relief under the renewable fuel standard. Mm -hmm. uh, these are actions that the, both the administration and Congress uh, could, could pursue. And uh, we could hold more lease sales on federal lands and waters uh, for oil, natural gas, coal, other minerals. These are things that were happening under the previous administration that really came to a screeching halt. And all of it is done to really advance the green agenda. Now, <laughs> I am not opposed at all to uh, more renewable energy. But we are years away, maybe decades away from a point where we can really rely and depend on it. And so in that interim period, I think we need to, to be all in on all sources of energy, including renewables. Uh, but we can't exclude them uh, because of a certain climate change agenda that this administration is wanting to pursue. Mm. That's a big topic, Rob. So thank you for taking so much time with it. I'll take a break. We'll come back. Lots more to discuss with Rob Bluey, who is the executive editor at The Daily Signal. You can always head to DailySignal.com to check it out. Be right back. Washington, D.C. correspondent. Always glad to talk to him on Tuesday. If you have a question for Rob, let me know what it is. I'll ask him on your behalf. 877-933-2484. Uh, Jim from Connecticut said, Rob, I ordered heating oil today. The price was $2 higher than I paid our last delivery. And I drove past the station this afternoon and the diesel fuel was $5.25. Half hour later, it was $5.59. It is. I mean, I when I'm commuting to work, I, I see it uh, the day after day, uh, sometimes the same day, as, right. as, uh, as he indicated, uh, the, the price going up that quickly. And I suspect that in light of today's news, when I when I leave the office tonight, I'll be seeing the price even higher than it was this morning. Mm -hmm. So I know when the truckers convoy in Canada uh, did their protest, it certainly caught the attention of pretty much everybody. What did we learn from that experiment? Yeah, great question. And, uh, and certainly, uh, it's, it's made its way to our area in, uh, in the United States. Uh, the Washington, D.C. area, I should, I should specify, did not come into the city itself, but drove around the Beltway mm -hmm. over the week uh, today. 
Um, and, and, you know, so you, you've had some, some focus, not nearly as much of it though. And I think that the important thing that the important lesson to take away from the, the convoy in Canada was to proportional to, to what the situation they were facing there in Canada, particularly the use of this emergency act, which had only been invoked. Uh, in the most extreme cases in Canada's history. And the fact that you had uh, the Prime Minister, uh, Justin Trudeau, uh, do so in the case of a peaceful protest uh, was, uh, I think, disproportionate to, to what was going on. Um, of course, as we know, uh, the bridge there in Detroit. And I think that the biggest impact is that the politicians in America said, we don't want our city to be uh, facing gridlock uh, like Canada was. And so we're going to get rid of a lot of the mandates that were in place. And so you saw a lot of March 1st seemed to be a magical date for whatever reason, where the masks came off uh, in schools and businesses, restaurants, uh, you name it. Uh, still profound. And if I could share with your listeners, the opportunity to interview on our podcast yesterday, uh, Eric Flannery, who's a Navy veteran who runs a restaurant called The Big Board. And The Big Board serves all sorts of clients in Washington, D.C. Republicans the audacity uh, to post on Twitter that all were welcome and he wasn't going to discriminate between vaccinated and unvaccinated. And for that, uh, he had nine people from um, the city's alcohol control board visit his bar. He, I think he had four health inspectors uh, also visit him, and they effectively shut him down. They gave him citation after citation, and his business continues to remain closed to this day, mm. despite the fact that D.C. no longer has a vaccine passport and no longer has a mask. All the other restaurants no longer have to comply with those mandates, and Eric is still uh, unable to open his restaurant. And so... Uh, for those who think that the COVID mandates have, are a thing of the past, uh, just ask Eric Flannery. He's still suffering the consequences. Boy, that's really tough. So, Rob, I'm sorry to say that we're having a little bit of a tech difficulty. So you are dropping out a little bit. So if I ask for you to repeat something, don't take it personally. Um, I am listening intently, just so you know. Okay, thank you, Bill. Yeah. Uh, I did not get a chance to see the State of the Union. I can trust you did, though, and maybe you can break down some of the things uh, that you saw and heard and want to share. Oh, yes. Well, well, geez, uh, it is the big night in Washington, D.C., uh, always every year. And uh, President Biden made a number of claims, which uh, were ne not necessarily surprising. I think some of them were factually challenged. Uh, but, uh, you know, for the most part, uh, we decided to Rob, I think, uh, yeah, things that he would like to accomplish. I'm so sorry, Rob. You're you're dropping out at an alarming rate, um, so we're having trouble. I think you can continue to talk. I think we're going to try to call you uh, as well on your cell phone, if that's possible, because uh, I don't want to lose this time with you. But it is not you are not coming through very well. I love technology. Hello, but, Bill. Yeah, here you go. All right, we're going to try this. This is a little live radio, so we'll see if this works or not. Wait, oh, I guess not. Are you there, Rob? All right. Well, I think what we'll do is uh, let Rob go, because I don't think we're going to be able to get him back. So uh, we're going to last-ditch effort to get Rob back on. This is going to be fun. All right. Rob Bluey is the executive editor at The Daily Signal. We'll see if we can get him back. 
Are you there, Rob? I'm here, Bill. Sorry right. about the technical difficulty. No problem. It's uh, nothing Nothing we haven't dealt with before. The trusty old phone is always reliable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anyway, back to the highlights of the State of the Union. Yes. And, and as, I, as I was indicating, much of the speech was obviously uh, presented in the context of, of what was happening in Ukraine. So the president spent the, the bulk of his time doing that. If I've heard any criticism of the, of the speech, though, it was that he did not pay attention to the concerns that Americans are facing day in and day out and inflation being a big one. We're going to get the new inflation numbers coming out on Thursday, so it'll be an interesting, uh, interesting news uh, cycle to watch and how the administration responds to it, particularly in light of the fact that the prices are going up, as we just talked about with gasoline. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so, you know, some criticism there. Uh, obviously, he faces some hurdles getting his agenda across the finish line in Congress. Uh, this is an election year, after all, and Congress is unlikely to move forward. Uh, but a big piece of uh, one big thing he is going to have to do and he wants to accomplish is to get his Supreme Court nominee confirmed. And so he made a big appeal uh, to the members of Congress, the senators, uh, to confirm her. So those were just a few of the highlights. But obviously, in an hour long speech, you know, there's a lot more to cover. Mm-hmm. I think we've got some uh, tech news, too. There's something that's going on uh, with the Ouija's that I would love to hear you talk about. Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, my colleague Steve Bucci has a piece on the Daily Signal uh, talking about uh, some of the concerns related to big big tech and China. And we have to remember that these are are companies that view themselves, even though they have their roots in America, they view themselves as global companies. And so oftentimes they are trying to position themselves in other marketplaces, including China, without regard to some of the same values that we may have here in our country. Mm -hmm. And so I think what's most alarming about the relationship that Facebook and Apple and and other Google have with, with China is that they do sometimes disregard human rights. And uh, and what's happening with with the Uyghurs is a classic example of that. Uh, they're oftentimes looking most at the bottom line and how much money that they can bring in. And China's a big, uh, big consumer base. Uh, they are also uh, in a position where they can sometimes dictate to these companies about what content they want their people to see. And so they're in a position where they are censoring information that otherwise would be available here in the United States. So I know those, those are some of the concerns that we have about, about these companies, which sometimes put the interests of foreign governments ahead of our own. Mm-hmm. Question came in, Rob. What are your thoughts on President Biden's suggestion to companies to fight inflation instead of lowering wages and making people poor? Instead, lower your costs. Well, they, I mean, it's not necessarily a bad idea for everybody to contribute their part, Bill. Yeah, right. The problem, is that, the problem is that there are a number of factors that are driving it. Number one is the fact that this administration and Congress are spending a ton of, of money, trillions of dollars. I mean, $6 trillion was, was spent just during the, pan, the last two years of the pandemic in emergency spending, and they want to spend even more with a new bill that's making its way through Congress this week. So I would say that's the number one driver of inflation in this country. It's not necessarily the private businesses, although I'm, I'm for everybody doing their part. As, uh, as, as much as we can bring down the prices, uh, I think we should. Yeah, well, we're trying to do our part here at Faith Radio by, um, you know, having the, the guests only get intermittent time on the show <laughs> with his voice cutting in and out. So we're doing our best. Well, thank you, Bill. It's, uh, it's great to be on with you today. Sorry about the technical ah, No problem. Thanks, Rob. Talk to you next week. Bye. Yep. Rob Blue has been my guest. He's the executive editor at The Daily Signal. And go to DailySignal.com. I'll say that again, DailySignal.com. And then, 
After a break, we're going to talk about a very difficult subject for the whole hour. So get ready. This is going to be quite a study. Dr. Greg Borgon is in the green room. He'll be in in just a minute. For the first half hour, I do want to apologize for our difficult difficulties we had with technology. Uh, Rob was cutting out a whole bunch. I guess my voice is echoing a little bit, and you only need to hear me once, that's for sure. Uh, but we're sorry that we had some technical difficulties, and we're sorry that you missed some of Rob's content. So anyway, awfully glad to have my next guest be in studio. So this makes me happy. Dr. Greg Borgon is my guest, and I asked him to, uh, to talk with us for a whole hour. Today. So well, we're going to cover a very difficult subject. I think this is one that we don't teach a lot in churches, and I don't think it's one that people are very comfortable with. And I think uh, most people um, would prefer not to even think about it. That's absolutely How's that for right. an introduction, Greg? That's a great introduction. Yeah. Bill. Would you like to introduce the topic? Sure, sure. Well, our topic today, uh, as you said, is a difficult one because people don't normally have a conversation about it unless they're um, dealing with something that uh, points to the whole issue of hell. And that's what we're going to talk about today, is hell. So people's understanding of hell, right, frankly, is all over the map, uh, relies on hopes and preferences, maybe even some corrupted understandings and reliance upon fiction, such as Dante's Divine Comedy. Um, non-believers, and some believers believe in heaven, but not hell. So this says more about the desire to avoid the truth, Bill, uh, because it is too uncomfortable to believe. And I I get that. (laughs) So in the shifting winds of modern culture, the idea of everlasting torment and damnation is difficult for many people to grasp. So why is this? Well, one, it's the influence of contemporary thought. We have the pervasive uh, flooding of our world with uh, secular humanism. And so anything that points a finger at guilt or responsibility and consequences for exercising free will, we tend to want to avoid that. And another is just absolute fear. Yeah. Fear of the unknown because they've seen movies uh, with uh, the devil and uh, with a pitchfork and burning <laughs> flames and fire and brimstone. Mm-hmm. Or they had this vision of just the torment that um, is un, uh, unfathomable. Yeah. Um, it's hard to, to I, rationalize I, I in your mind. I almost think the enemy likes us to think of him in the red suit with the pitchfork. Oh, absolutely. Because you don't take that character very seriously. Right? No, you don't. And, and if you do, it's, it's, gener- it's relegated to a horror movie more than a, a, Bible under- a biblical right, understanding right, of it. right. Another problem is a flawed view of God's love. It, it uh, means that God, how could, if God loves us, how could he even entertain the possibility or the creation or the existence of hell if he's really a God of love? Well, that's a legitimate question, and it deserves a legitimate answer. But because of that misperception of God's love, and, under, and instead of juxtaposing it to the fact that his character is also one of just justice, 
and how do the two relate to one another? And where does mercy come in and all of that? So there's confusion about an understanding of God's love. Another is actually a downplaying of sin. You don't hear much of it today. As a matter of fact, sadly enough, Bill, you don't hear much about it in many churches today uh, either. Yeah. Um, and what we do is we, we kind of uh, shadow it by other terms that are more acceptable, like um, corruption or not even that strong. It might be a mistake or a misunderstanding or uh, a bad choice instead of calling it what it is mm-hmm. in this day and age. Another uh, reason that, um, you know, the, the idea of everlasting torment and damnation is difficult for many people to grasp is uh, theories, uh, wrong biblical theories. For instance, annihilation, annihilationism believes that once you die and you're judged, and if you are judged um, by the great right throne of, uh, of judgment, then uh, you won't be in torment for the rest of eternity. You'll just be annihilated. Mm-hmm. You'll just be removed from existence altogether. Um, and there's other theories uh, that are out there, theological theories, for instance, universal salvation, that God, uh, that, that it's possible for all of us to be saved, and uh, God will keep giving us chances to make that happen. And so all of mankind will be saved. That's called universalism. So we have these it's theories. Nice th- it's a nice theory. Yeah, nice theory. I mean, it's, it's a warm it's theory. True. It's a fuzzy theory. It's just not true biblically. Right, right. I mean, Jesus talked more about hell than he did heaven. Oh, yeah, absolutely. As a matter of fact, you know, hell is mentioned over 167 times in in the Bible. Another reason, I think, Bill, is just incomplete teaching on the subject. Just as you mentioned, as we were discussing a few seconds ago, you don't hear sermons on this subject. People and pastors generally stay away from it. And then, of course, there's Satan's ploy of clouding the mind and darkening our understanding and getting us to accept or embrace Uh, something that is not true, so he can have full control over what is true, or at least what we know to be true, that he distorts as a lie. So those are all the reasons why I think it's difficult for many people to grasp this whole concept of uh, of hell. It's a good comprehensive list. Yeah. Um, Well, there's two, there's really two allegories, I think, that uh, it's it's worth... um, you know, going through a little bit of understanding of both of these allegories because they both speak about hell. In the 14th century, uh, Dante Alighieri's epic poem, Divine Comedy, and comedy in this case doesn't mean laugh. It means um, a drama that was meant to entertain in earlier writings. They called them comedies, but Mm -hmm. they, they certainly were not laughable matters. Anyway, in his epic poem, Divine Comedy, he depicts travel through three arenas. One is called paradise, which we understand to mean heaven. Another is purgatorio, which we understand to be purgatory, or Roman Catholics believe in purgatory. And then finally, the inferno, which is hell. So in the last destination, he depicts nine concentric circles of torment located within the earth. So it is the realm of those which have rejected spiritual values by yielding to bestial appetites or violence, I'm quoting here from the allegory, or by perverting their human intellect to fraud or malice against their fellow man. So as an allegory, the divine comedy represents the journey of the soul towards God, with the inferno describing the recognition and rejection of sin. To go into a little bit more detail as it reflects on hell, the nine circles of hell are concentric in this poem, They represent a gradual increase in wickedness. Uh, 
and culminates at the center of the earth where Satan is held in bondage. It's called the, the, the dark pit, the great pit. Now, some of the circles have additional rings associated with them. But in the first circle, it's for people that are in limbo, people that um, haven't created mortal sin and or venial sin are, are, are working to uh, mediate their venial sin so they are, they are brought into heaven. We know that that's not a biblical concept. The second concentric circle is for those who are lustful. The third for people who are gluttons. The fourth for hoarders and spenders. The fifth concentric circle for the wrathful and the sullen. The sixth for heretics. The seventh for, and here's where these, there's four rings to the seventh one, for the violent, for suicides, for blasphemy, uh, blasphemers, for sodomites and usurers. Usurers are people who extracted exorbitant interest well beyond the norm of the day mm-hmm. and actually put people in the poorhouse and destroyed uh, their meager uh, belongings because of that. And the eighth uh, concentric circle is for fraudsters, those that are deceivers, and the ninth is uh, for the treacherous, uh, which is also called, as I mentioned, the pit of hell. Now, though an allegory, it was often believed to be an accurate description in its time of hell by the Uninformed, because if you can imagine, in the 14th century, people were still relying on religious uh, entities for truth or for description of truth. There were the whole thing of paying for penances um, and so that you could move up in this uh, and that kind of a thing. So in any case, uh, that's, that's what it was talking about. So it was an allegory uh, that some believed were, was truth. Now, another allegory that comes to mind... The one that I uh, think is, is, is an exceptional allegory is called uh, C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce. Now, The Great Divorce is a novel by, of course, the British author C.S. Lewis, uh, which was published in uh, 1945, and it's based on a theological dream vision of his in which he reflects on the Christian conceptions of heaven and hell. Now, C.S. Lewis's work entitled The Great Divorce is an allegory of the way that Lewis himself views heaven and hell. So the Oxford Dictionary uh, defines allegory as a story, picture, or other piece of art that uses symbols to convey a hidden or ulterior meaning, typically a moral or political one. Now, in its most simple and concise definition, an allegory is when a piece of visual or narrative media uses one thing uh, to stand for a different or a hidden thing. So in this particular allegory, the novel begins in a dark gray town, which we've come to realize represents the afterlife. The gray town is lonely, and the people who live there are always fighting and yelling at one another. We have our own gray town, I guess, right now going on. Mm-hmm. For some, the gray town is hell, a place where humans are punished for eternity, though their punishment consists of arguing, fighting, and loneliness rather than the stereotypical fire and brimstone that we're familiar with. For others, though, the great town is a form of purgatory, a place where the souls live for a time before eventually migrating to heaven. Now, in the first chapter of this book, Bill, uh, it develops the image of the gray, raining, and dismal town that the narrator has left behind uh, for the reader. The town is a place where quarrels are constant and wants are non-existent despite uh, there being no drive for industry or economic cooperation among the town's inhabitants. The people of the town live in solitude. They're constantly uh, uh, driving further and further away from each other. 
uh, and expanding the town's limit to the infinite. Uh, the town is an illustration, really, of what hell is like, and it is a divisive and corrosive environment despite it not possessing fire and brimstone images akin to the many biblical images of, of hell throughout history. So this grim and... Yeah, great uh, great so far, Greg. I think we'll take a little break, if you don't mind. Sure, We, sure. we have to pace ourselves because we've got okay. a lot of material to get through. <laughs> yeah, and uh, you're, we're talking today about a very difficult uh, subject, which is hell. And if you... Uh, um, are new to this biblical discussion. I hope you uh, get your word out and always measure what's being said against what the word says. And I always trust uh, my guest, Dr. Greg Borgon. You can learn more about him at heartofawarrior.org. And after a short break, we'll be right back. sense of urgency to tell others that we know and love about the love of Jesus, that they might come to saving faith. And because the topic we're discussing today is hell, and our guest is Dr. Greg Borgon, who's a regular on the show, and he is um, handling this beautifully. Greg, I, I'm looking forward to learning more. All right. Well, again, the first chapter of the book develops the imagery. Again, I'm talking about um, The Great Divorce, written by C.S. Lewis back in 1945. And I would encourage your audience to pick up that little book. It's just amazingly written, and uh, you'll enjoy uh, reading through it because it'll give you some insight into his thinking process as he tried to uh, differentiate between heaven and hell and, and our opportunity to either embrace or, or not embrace God's gift of salvation. So the town is a place where quarrels, as we said, are constant, and uh, wants are non-existence. We talked about that. It's an illustration of what hell is like, and, and it is a divisive, corrosive environment, we, we said, despite it not possessing fire and brimstone images, as we've talked about. So the grim and joyless city, the gray town, it's called, is a place where it rains continuously, um, even indoors, <laughs> which is either hell um, or other uh, location you might be familiar with. When I go to Ireland, it rains all the time, no, no, but nobody but goes indoors. to Ireland for <laughs> That's right, not indoors. But nobody goes to Ireland for the weather. So in any case, it, it describes this, this environment. So depending on whether or not one stays there. So the story describes a bus stop for those who desire an excursion to some other place. The destination later turns out to be the foothills of heaven. So the narrative develops from the narrator, to, and by the way, the narrator, you'll come to find out, is Jesus Christ. Uh, taking a bus ride up and out of this gray and dank city away to the countryside, he finds himself within the earliest parts of heaven. Upon getting off the bus, a land of intense beauty and perfection. So the bus ascends into the air, dropping its passengers off at a cliff at the edge of the vast and, and gorgeous scenery at the edge of paradise, full of trees and rivers and general atmosphere of beauty and light. And so the narrator and his traveling companion on the bus ride uh, find that they are ghosts. 
imperfect shadows against the country of impermeable beauty. So heaven is, in his book, shown over the course of the narrative to be the result of a choice freely offered to humankind to make. So the narrative itself is revealed to be a dream, and it's in this characteristic that makes it all the more real. The boundaries between heaven and hell are easily traversed, but a person must be wholly remade if they, if they choose to enter heaven. So the main conflict surrounds the surrender of all earthly burdens to be in God's presence. So some characters choose to remain in the shadows of the great town, hell, clinging to the earthly pain rather than surrendering to God's eternal love and brightness. And that's a message for us today, too. So in this allegory, and I'll conclude with this, and then we'll get to what the Bible says about hell. Okay. In this allegory, the bus riders meet people who they knew in life and who now reside in heaven um, and they meet them to offer a once-in-a-lifetime chance to cross over. All but one refuses. Now, that's interesting to me. I mean, even today, when we see a demonstration of God's power and his movement that can't be explained any other way, we go ahead and we rationalize the experience as being something else because it's so hard for us to believe in miracles or God's presence in this difficult time. So we're not without the same kind of a problem. We'd rather go ahead as these riders on the bus. They'd rather embrace the torment of what they know instead of the promised bliss they don't know. Hmm. So they'd rather maintain their perception of control over their lives, even if the specter was dark, dreary, and hopeless, because it's what they know. Right. And so they'd rather stay with what they know than being asked to change and, you know, what I've always seen, Bill, about salvation is that when we receive Jesus as Savior and Lord, we are ushered to the foot of the cross where we give up all we know, we, th- we think we know we are, and God returns who we truly are, our true humanity, not the distorted um, version that we've been living up to that point. But many of us don't have the courage or the will to say, Take what I am, Lord, and give me back who you made me to be. I'd rather go ahead and stay like I am because it's the devil I know, so to speak. You've heard that phrase, rather than something I don't know. So that's the whole point of the story. So this allegory, along with Dante's uh, Divine Comedy, especially in, in terms of the Inferno, gives us these kind of word pictures of these metaphors of what heaven is like. But what does the Bible say about hell? What does it actually say? And although there are many questions that come to mind regarding hell, I want to consider six of the most common. These are questions I've been asked on occasion myself. Okay. And I'm sure you have as well. Now, here's, here's, I'll give you the six questions ahead of time, and then we'll, we'll explore each one. And you just stop me anytime you want to take a break, or I'll just keep going. So okay. I'll keep my eye on you, Bill. All right. All right. So the first question is, is hell a real place? The second question is, how is hell described in the Bible? The third question, who is hell for? Uh, The fourth question, are there levels of hell such as Dante's seven circles? Uh, The fifth question is, why does God send people to hell? And the final question, how is eternity in hell a fair punishment for sin? Those are great questions. So they beg an answer, and the Bible gives us the answers. Let's, let's look at the first one. Okay. Is hell a real place? Is hell a real place? So in Revelation chapter 20, verse 14 and 15, 
And also in chapter 21, verse 1 and 2, we read the following. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So, you know, Jesus spent, as you had mentioned a little earlier, Bill, more time warning people about the dangers of hell than he did in comforting them with the hope of heaven. Many Christians don't realize that until they are really exposed to the Word of God. But he referred to hell more often than he did heaven. Now, the concept of a real, conscious, forever and ever existence in hell is just as biblical as a real, conscious, forever and ever existence in heaven. Scary as it might Mm -hmm. seem. As we mentioned earlier, hell is mentioned 167 times in the Bible, depending on the version. And it's sometimes called Gehenna, Hades, uh, uh, which is the pit, the abyss, or everlasting punishment, and Sheol, a pit or grave. So those three terms, Gehenna, Hades, and Sheol, are often uh, transliterated or interpreted to mean hell. But the one thing you love about Greek and Hebrew is it's much more definitive than English, and so they differentiate. So mm-hmm. is there really a difference? It's referred to as Shoal, Hades, and Gehenna. So, so the question is, there, is there a difference between them? So let's look at what uh, the Bible says. Now, in the Old Testament, the word translated hell is Sheol, Hebrew, uh, for, for hell, Sheol. Now, in the New Testament, it's Hades, which is Greek, meaning unseen, and Gehenna, the Valley of Henan. Now, stay with me. Sheol is also translated as pit and grave, but both Sheol and Hades refer to a temporary mode, abode of the dead before judgment, according to Psalm 9, 17 and Revelation 1, 18. Hades and Sheol are not necessarily a place of torment because God's people were said to go there as well as the wicked. That's, that Probably most people don't, don't know that. So in the New Testament, we find that Hades is somehow compartmentalized. Right. That is, the realm of the dead is divided into a place of comfort and a place of torment, according to Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. So Hades and Sheol is not necessarily a place of torment because God's people were said to go there as well as the wicked. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting to know. It is. Now, Gienna, on the other hand, is different. It refers to an eternal state of punishment for the wicked dead, according to Mark 9.43. The word the Bible uh, uses to describe a burning hell, Gehenna, actually comes from an actual burning place. It's called the, uh, the Valley of Gehenna, which was adjacent uh, to Jerusalem on the south. So in one of their greatest apostasies, the Jews, especially under King Ahaz in Manasseh, passed their children through the fires and sacrifice to the god Moloch in that very valley. Wow. Second Kings 16, Second Chronicles 33, and Jeremiah 32. Eventually, the Jews considered that location to be ritually unclean, according to Second Kings 
and they defiled it all the more by casting the bodies of criminals into its smoldering heaps. In Jesus' time, this was a place of constant fire, but more so it was a refuse heap, the, the last stop for all items judged by men to be worthless. So when Jesus spoke of Gehenna hell, he was speaking of the city dump of all eternity. Yes, fire was part of it, but the purposeful casting away the separation and loss was all of it. So both Sheol and Hades refer, just as to recap here, refer to a temporary abode of the dead before judgment, where Gehenna refers to the eternal state of punishment for the wicked dead. Because mm. as we've said in previous shows, that followers of Christ, when they die, their souls go to be with God. Their mm -hmm. bodies will be resurrected at the final day. Um, and likewise, the wicked, their souls will go to this temporary place until God's white throne of judgment, and then their bodies will be joined and they'll be sent to this place called Gehenna or hell. Hmm. And we'll get our glorified bodies at the rapture. Uh, well, actually, uh, it, it, we'd have to go into a lot of detail about this, but it, actually it's your soul. Oh, you're talking about soul. Uh, the, the actual soul, the actual physical body is not joined back to the soul until the final day. Gotcha. All right, we'll take a little break as we continue a challenging discussion on the topic of hell. And we are uh, learning from Dr. Greg Borgon. You can go to heartofawarrior.org to learn more about Greg. Otherwise, we'll be back with more in just a minute. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.